Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 116th show. Today's guest is Guy Palmer-Muter, uh, author of Present Future. Did I get your name right? You, you, you got it. Let's <laughs> close, close it up. <laughs> yeah, close enough. So, uh, Guy, let's start off with, can you tell us about your professional background, especially uh, about your investment firm? Sure. Uh, so I'm a computer engineer, uh, and I have a master's in electrical engineering, specifically in, in AI, which I took back in the mid-1990s before, you know, all the hype. Um, I actually had a, a very a long career uh, doing risk management and asset allocation uh, and uh, financial world. Uh, started doing some angel investing. Uh, and uh, about six or seven years ago, I started my own investment firm called Grits Capital, which is a venture capital firm focused on uh, deep technologies. And was your family in business as well? No, so so my dad he uh, he was a uh, business person. Uh, he basically was uh, into selling and buying electronics, uh, vacuum tubes at the time, and then some uh, the measurement instruments. Uh, my mom she she was a stay at home uh, mom, uh, and uh, and so the 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 whole. A passion for technology, I think, got started uh, uh, with me, actually. Did you go, uh, where did you go to college? So uh, I did college. Both my uh, undergrad and my graduate degrees are from the uh, uh, local uh, Catholic university in Rio de Janeiro, which is which is home for me. Uh, so that's where I did both my degrees, undergrad and graduate. So let's talk about your book. Why, why did you write this book? So back in 2016, I guess, maybe 17, uh, I started to write a column for uh, probably the most prestigious uh, newspaper in Brazil uh, called O Estado de São Paulo, which is kind of like the New York Times in the sense that it is a local newspaper but that you can buy it anywhere in the country because it it, it has a lot of pull and it attracts uh, you know uh, uh, a very interesting uh, uh, part of the uh, of the public. Uh, so I started writing about the future of business in this uh, newspaper, and I started to write columns uh, on a regular basis. And my columns they kind of talk to each other in the sense that column from week four. Uh, was connected to column of week three and column five. So it became very natural for me that after, I don't know, 50 or 60 columns, I thought, you know, I should compile them and maybe publish a book. What I didn't know was that once I, I, I kind of got all of them together and I looked at them and it did not have the constraints of, 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 of you know, size and number of characters and number of words, 
I decided to kind of drill a little deeper into each one of those columns and each one of those technologies. So I ended up kind of doing uh, 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 a lot of uh, historic research for the book, but the genesis was was the actual columns for uh, for the newspaper. Well, I have to tell you, I love this book because there's a lot of history uh, about technology, and a lot of times we didn't realize how far back some of this technology really does go, and it's just getting better and better. And it's not as new as we might think. In the beginning of the book, there's a quote, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. What's meant by that? Right. So this quote has been attributed to a lot of people, but the actual author uh, of this quote is Alan Kay, who worked at the historic uh, uh, Bell Labs uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, the idea is that it is very, very hard for any of us to predict the future. Uh, it's an exercise in futility to try to look uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the road and say, okay, this is this is what we're going to have. We're going to have flying cars. We're going to have uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, food transformers or whatever. Uh, the idea is that you can certainly exercise those muscles and try to uh, to pay attention at where uh, uh, you know humanity is heading. But the actual way where you can be effective about it is that you're not trying to forecast the future or predict it. You're actually dealing with the inventors that are building it. So you have uh, a, a much higher probability of being correct, of being uh, uh, accurate in your predictions if you're not doing any guesswork. You're actually talking to the people who are building the future uh, in many different areas. Spoken like a venture capitalist. Indeed, yes. <laughs> How old were you when you developed your love uh, of technology and what type of technology was that? Because you talk about that in the book. Absolutely. So I think this this comes, you know, from my, you know, very, very young years. Uh, I remember my first uh, big uh, break into technology. I think I was probably eight or nine years old. And uh I was uh, I was at a shopping mall with my mom, and there was this little corner store that was offering programming lessons for for kids. And I remember I was blown away with the idea that I would eventually be able to sit down in front of a computer and type a few commands and 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 kind of bend it to my will. And that became like an obsession to me, and I I kind of pestered my parents for. Uh, days and weeks and months until I got it not only into the course but eventually uh, until they bought me you know my own computer for me to play around with uh, and to figure out what was that magical machine that could do stuff where instead of you getting information like you know you get from a TV or a radio set where you're passively getting information in, you could actually you know deliver information and get the feedback and get the conversation going. So so yeah, it's been it's been a while since that happened. So instead of um, being the next Pele, you focused on technology. Very very early on, uh, that was my calling, and I never looked back. Yeah, and, and it was a good calling, as anybody who reads this book is going to see. Do you read a lot of science fiction? If so, who influences you the most? Yes, I, I mean, I'm an avid reader. And uh, as I grew older, I became a little more, 
I think eclectic and I, I started reading about, you know, more topics, more subjects, but science fiction has always kind of accompanied me. Uh, uh, I think, you know, I, I really like John Scalzi. He's like this, uh, this incredibly creative, prolific, uh, 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 sci-fi uh, writer. I'm a big fan of Philip K. Dick. I think I read everything about that that he ever wrote. Uh, I'm also a fan of the classic classics, both Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. I've read again most of their work. So, so I and and again more recently William Gibson and and, and authors that are kind of trying their hand at different aspects of of sci-fi. But but both in movies and in books, that's that's definitely my favorite genre. And we found that whatever they've written those books uh, has eventually happened over time. May not happen when they're writing them, but certainly in the future, they, they've been true. In your lifetime, what's the most meaningful technology you've seen developed and why? I think uh, that's a good one. I think the uh, microprocessor, if you look at the... Uh, uh, when I started programming computers back in the 1980s, I guess... Uh, we're looking at, you know, processing powers that were negligible compared to what we have today. Uh, but that was the genesis of, you know, everything that surrounds us, not only computers or phones or tablets, but now cars and refrigerators and coffee makers and pretty much every single machine and every single interaction we have with the artificial world, uh, I think, can be traced to that a particular breakthrough, not only the transistors back in the late 1950s, but especially the microprocessing power that uh, actually ushered the third industrial revolution and that uh, ultimately uh, raised the fourth industrial revolution, which is uh, where we are right now. You mentioned you learned to program the Sinclair, I think it's the ZX81 at age nine. I, I never heard of that computer. You know, I, I go back to the Radio Shack days if you've heard of Radio Shack here in the U.S., but what did you learn from that, and how has that affected you today? Oh yeah, so so yes, the the the, the Radio Shacks. I remember my first, the first time I stepped into a Radio Shack, they were selling a TRS eighty, which was a relatively robust computer when compared mm -hmm. to the Sinclairs. But that was the time when it was the Sinclairs, TRS eighties, and then the Apple one, and then Apple two, and then things started to take off. But ultimately, the Sinclair was a very simple computer. Its storage was based on a, a tape recorder, you know, those K, uh, tapes that, uh, K7 tapes that you uh, use for storage. And that the principles behind the computer, the screen, the keyboard, the storage unit, the programming languages, those were principles that I learned back then and that are still valid right now. So it was for me very instrumental in, in, in learning that if you are a good uh, 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 engineer or if you're a good builder or if you are someone who can ultimately understand how building blocks relate to each other, then you 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 you'll be fine, right? You can learn multiple programming languages. You can learn multiple architectures because you have a solid knowledge of how those basic building blocks they interact with each other. You write about deep tech revolution. What's that? So, if you think about the world around us, right, and and the innovation that we experience, there are roughly speaking two families of innovation, right? There's the uh, 
soft technology, which is basically people taking existing technologies and merging them together and combining them together so that they can provide a new service. So you can think of Uber, for instance, as one of those soft technologies. They're taking uh, on a very simple level uh, the uh, the idea of the GPS, the idea of uh, you know your need for transportation, and the idea of this distributed network of drivers, and they're providing a new service to you. But there's no real technical breakthrough other than, uh, and of course, uh, again, I'm oversimplifying this, but uh, it's all about software and databases and optimization algorithms. But if you think about the other types of technologies, the deep tech technologies, these are technologies that are actually pushing the frontiers forward, right? When we talk about a new type of drug discovery process, a new device that will help people with any sort of disability to perform better in their daily lives. When you talk about new sources of energy, storage of energy, uh, new models that will help you be able to uh, you know, send rocket ships to space or optimize the orbit of satellites, everything where you have to have a very deep technical background and create a new sort of technology, that's what we call uh, a deep tech. Uh, you mentioned focusing on technologies that are inevitabilities. How do you define them and, and what are they? So, so yeah, that's another fantastic question because uh, it, it ties nicely into your uh, uh, previous question about uh, you know inventing the future versus predicting the future. Because once you start looking at some uh, uh, secular trends, you can ultimately be much better equipped uh, to handle uh, what's coming down the pipe. So let's talk, for instance, about uh, you know uh, our lifespan. Right, this is an inevitability uh, in my view. We are going to live longer. We're going to live uh, to be you know, older than the previous generations. This is a trend that has been consistently uh, uh, unfolding before our eyes. And this has many ramifications. If you look at uh, drug discovery, therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices, digital health, so all those families of companies and of, uh, of, of innovations, they are inevitable because they're, they're sitting at the intersection of a trend that has been playing out for, uh, for many, many decades. Uh, and that uh, is actually astonishing if you think about you know, how our lifespan as a species has increased and how we have changed completely the types of diseases that are actually killing us. We, we now have a, a completely different profile of threats to our health. And these are the, the companies and these are the initiatives that are going to kind of shield us from that. Another inevitability, I think, has to do with, uh, with uh, 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 urbanization, right? Cities. If you look at the world until 2015, as, 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 as recent as 2015, uh, we had about a 50-50 split between people that lived in rural, rural areas versus people that lived in uh, cities and urban areas. And as of 2015, now we're, we're now getting more and more people uh, going into uh, cities. 
And again, this is a trend. This is an inevitability because uh, we have more robots and more autonomous systems in the fields. We're being more efficient to crop, uh, to, to be able to uh, uh, create uh, uh, food for, for the planet, less people with more efficiency, and more people are seeking opportunities within cities, within urban areas. And there are many books about the subject. So again, that unlocks a whole new part of the venture world, which is Internet of Things, mobility, uh, energy, uh, clean tech, optimization of many types of services. So again, uh, inevitabilities are trends that are not dependable on which government is going to be in power, which opinion you have about the world, uh, what is your favorite color. These are things that are going to happen whether you like it or not. And we try to position ourselves in a way that we can benefit our, our investors uh, from those inevitabilities. Before I uh, start with the um, questions from the audience, I do wonder this. Why is it that people during the pandemic uh, started doubting uh, pharmaceutical healthcare technology, and yet they totally believe in their phone technology, computer technology, all these other things. I mean, they have some fear of some of these things, but why do you think people are questioned? Because half of us were willing to take those shots willingly. We've been taking shots since we were kids. And there's a good chunk, at least in the United States, that was totally resistant to uh, getting those COVID shots, even though the even though the um, research and the outcomes that we could plainly see favored getting those shots. What, why do you think people have these significant doubts? I think I think the heart of this question goes into actually one of the chapters of the book where we talk about uh, uh, social media and social networks which are probably one of the key risks for, for our civilization as we know it going forward, uh, along with biotechnological risk and cyber risk, because uh, we have created a world where opinions become more important than facts. And if someone with a handful of followers and a very deep background in immunology tells you something and someone who has absolutely no knowledge of biology or viruses or immunology, but happens to have a gazillion followers for whatever reason, that person is amplified and become much more relevant. And the problem is that we, as a species, we are very susceptible to what our peers are thinking. And what happens is that I have not a shot in hell uh, in terms of trying to convince someone that vaccines save lives uh, because I'm too far away from their point of view and their reality on a day-to-day. -day. The thing that people don't understand is that the further apart you are from that particular person or community from a, 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 a principal's perspective, the harder it will be for you to convince them. The best person to convince you of something is someone who shares 80 or 90% of your beliefs because that's someone you relate to it he or she will make part of your community. So I think this is the signal that that, that the harm that, uh, that uh, social networks in particular are creating and why we can pinpoint this problem to social networks because there are plenty of studies that show that you know, the increase in suicide, suicide rates among teenagers, uh, they, they match the popularization of 
uh, social networks where image uh, is much more important than substance. It's because now we have something in 2022, we have something that is called the flat earth society. So there are people that are actually believers or they claim to be believers that the earth is flat. So all this nonsense, all this stupidity, all this idiocy, it is part of the same problem. And vaccines or the, the, the fear that vaccines are going to install a microchip to crack you or that they are using us as guinea pig. Although that nonsense, I think it's part of the same root problem, which, as we know, uh, is generating uh, terms that I, I think none of us thought we would ever hear, like alternate facts, right? That was uttered uh, uh, in the like second or third day uh, of, of the the first and last mandate of, of of President Trump, where people were talking about alternate facts or alternate truth. And the fact of the matter is that you know you can be flexible and you can be uh, subjective and you can be uh, uh, understandable about a ton of things. But in many many cases, fortunately, the truth is not subject to comments or to opinions. It is what it is. And I unfortunately I think that we are we are in this path for, for the long run. I think this is this is the new reality we'll have to deal with. And we are seeing initiatives that are trying to deal with this with these challenges. Yeah. And now you've just destroyed all my beliefs and now I've got to switch the social media that I got <laughs> listening to. The fact that you tell me the earth isn't flat, Jesus, I don't know what happened there. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. That's been a that's been a thought for a few hundred years, but now you've dispelled it. So when I'm I mean, in that there, plane, <laughs> there, 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 I mean, there are so many ways you can disprove that, but still, uh, you can Google it. It's a thing. It's it's a society of people that say no, it's a scam. Actually, the Earth is flat. And again, uh, I I don't I don't have any handle to deal with people with people like that because what they're going to tell them you're going to show them a picture. I'm sure they saw photos of the Earth already. I, I'm sure they know about time zones. I, I'm sure they know about you know curvature of the Earth. I, I'm sure they Coriolis effect. I mean, I'm sure they know about all that stuff. But still, they believe whatever they believe. And again, uh, if you ask me, it's a waste of time and energy. And this takes far too much airtime uh, that uh, we have to deal with this nonsense. And now you're going to tell me that Elvis still isn't alive. So this is going to be a big disappointment to me. So we have a question from the audience. How do you see the impact of global warming, climate change on lifespan and health going forward? What technological solutions do you see coming along to address these issues? That's a, that's a great question. And actually, uh, as, as is the case uh, often in history, uh, technology uh, not only solves problems, but it also creates problems. If you want to trace the origins of, of, of the warming of the atmosphere, uh, it goes back, it started really with the first industrial revolution. This is when we started to like uh, send out uh, uh, gases that ultimately trap heat in the atmosphere and create this effect over centuries, right? Uh, so technology, uh, this so this is a critical problem, and you can argue that this is the key problem in our uh, our uh, times because we are as as we have been uh, alerted to by thousands of scientists and, and dozens of reports over the last few years. 
uh, we're running out of time to make this process reversible, right? We're actually at, a, at, a, at almost at a point of no return where ecosystems uh, uh, that are very delicately balanced are going to be, uh, uh, you know, damaged for good. So technology will play a role and it will depend on technology to come to the rescue because we're not going to revert to a, a, a pre-first industrial revolution uh, way of life, right? We'll continue to uh, to need electricity for heating, for our devices, uh, fuel for traveling. So the technology that I'm seeing today, uh, that's uh, the renaissance of climate tech. There was a brief spell of climate tech in the early 2000s that was ultimately uh, a way very much concentrated in solar energy and solar panels, but that that didn't play out really well for investors uh, for several reasons. But right now, I think we're going to live uh, through the golden years of climate technologies. We're going to see technologies for carbon sequestration, uh, new batteries, uh, uh, new fuels, uh, uh, reduction, reduction of emissions, new materials. So. This is going to be, I think, the the way our 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 exit in this uh, a path that we are trailing that is is not going to end well for us. So I think that we will rely on those new technologies to kind of uh, uh, save all of us. And we need a solution because I'm not giving up my stake. Right. I like I like me too much. I'm just not giving it up. I hear uh, you. Uh, another question from the audience: Like the engine transformed transportation. Do you think the ability to bypass programming languages, not using AI to mimic what coders do, would transform computing? Well, uh, this no-code, low-code trend uh, is something that that we've seen before. I mean, there there've been for for, and again, you for for whoever uh, uh, reads the book, this is going to be a very common thread in the book where. You know, technologies that we believe are are new actually have been around for for decades, if not centuries. And the low code, no code is is one of those. Uh, I think that uh, as we create better tools, more sophisticated tools, uh, we will be able to accelerate the development of new services, new products, new systems. However, if history is any guide, the the pace with which we do that will also require new processors, new hardware, new architectures. So at the end of the day, the relevance of those architectures and the relevance of those methods are going to go back to what I mentioned before. People have to be aware and knowledgeable of which building blocks we're talking about because those are not going to go anywhere. It's just the means through which you're going to achieve that objective. And if you look at you know tools that are are get, getting a lot of media attention, like uh, DALI, for instance, by uh, OpenAI, where you can describe a scene, and in in a matter of seconds, the computer will will create a, an image that perfectly reflects your description, and actually, it creates a batch of images so that you can choose from that. This is again a, a, a very sophisticated model by our current standards of taking a very old concept, which is the concept of books and illustrations and paintings and sculpture and arts. So again, the tools change, the models change, the frameworks change, but the building blocks are there. And if you can master those building blocks and you can spot those trends where those building blocks are heading to, then I think you're gonna be in good shape. 
Another question from the audience. What are your thoughts on the future of fintech companies diving into digital payments, Web3, cryptocurrency, NFTs, and the metaverse? We have that question as part of my questions too. So uh, we're just jumping into that earlier. So, so let's try to, to, to kind of break that down because there, there's a lot to unpack there. And, and again, I'll, 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 I'll try to be thorough, but we're definitely not going to be able to dig deeper uh, so that we can have uh, you know, other topics to discuss. But let's start. Let me carve out the metaverse from this conversation because the metaverse, again, is a new name for virtual reality. Uh, which has been around for decades and which still has a very important challenge that has to do with our form factor, right? Humans. Uh, right now, for you to get immersed into virtual reality or in a metaverse, uh, you need, uh, you know, one of those goggles that you put and that will kind of give you 120 degrees of, uh, of, of, of uh, field of vision. Uh, and that's just something that we humans don't like. We don't like to attach anything to our bodies. We'd rather have simpler things. There are people actively working on contact lenses that will ultimately, you just stick them in your eyes and then you can overlay uh, augmented reality and in the future, eventually virtual reality. There are people working in monitors where you just kind of uh, get a little closer to the monitor and, and, and you got this, this depth of field illusion so the metaverse is a tool that has been around, you know, Second Life, which, you know, many of, of, of you may have heard of or played with eventually, uh, I think is like a 20-year-old piece of software, which did exactly what the idea of the metaverse does, which is provide you with a, 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 an avatar and let you kind of make new acquaintances and visit new places. So the metaverse is, is something that we'll certainly continue to see developing. Uh, and, and the confusion spans from the fact that in the metaverse, you can see a lot of uh, use cases for digital assets and NFTs and so on and so forth. And this is why people kind of merge those topics together. So let me carve out uh, digital assets and NFTs. NFTs in the real world, uh, and again, the, 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 the cheap shot is to say, yeah, they're taking ape uh, JPEGs and you're selling that, those for millions and millions of dollars. And sure, that was the, the, the world of art was one that NFTs were very appropriate, if you will, to be applied to because uh, that's a world that has never been disrupted before. And people who develop digital art wanted to create this idea of authenticity, of you have the original work of art, even though I can copy and paste that thousands and millions of times. But the NFT's true potential lies into you making life simpler in the real world with certificates of authenticity, certificates of transfer, buy and selling stuff. And this ties back into the blockchain. So the NFTs and the blockchain, they have their own business utility. And I think we're going to be exploring those as the problems and logistics in the world continue to unfold because blockchains are going to be great to simplify and to make supply chains uh, better uh, and faster and quicker. And again, there are uh, 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 several companies out there that are actually doing this kind of work, which is not as glamorous, that doesn't capture headlines in, in newspapers and in magazines, but that's where the utility function of uh, both NFTs and blockchains reside, in my opinion, right now. Now, finally, we get to cryptocurrencies and fintech and DeFi. 
Now, the thing with that is that there is a bigger player in the room when you talk about finance, right? So when you talk about crypto, uh, and you can, uh, you know, argue and 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 make a case that no, this is the way to distribute uh, wealth. This is the way for you know democratizing wealth and 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 no barriers to transfer money from A to B, from B to C. But the fact of the matter is that there are no areas in the tech world that are more highly concentrated than NFTs and crypto. I mean, like 90% or plus of the assets in those areas are detained by 5% of less of users. So this whole democratizing distribution, that's, that's, that's not the angle. I think that uh, the idea and the probable uh, outcome of all of this movement, which has certainly a ton of value, is going to be for governments and central banks uh, central authorities, because we're talking about something that has to be universally acknowledged as having a standard and value uh, to be able to accelerate the creation of a digital dollar or a digital euro or digital or where you will have tools. And again, the question starts with uh, models of payment. I think we're going to be less and less dependent on traditional methods of payment. Uh, I think most of us already have very little use for cash, for paper money. Most of us use our phones, our watches, and our our, uh, our cards, our plastics to deliver payments. And I think that this is the trend in in in, in finance for for the next few years that is more uh, uh, shielded from the noise and the speculation that goes hand in hand with crypto at this point, because there's ultimately no underlying value in those currencies, right? You cannot touch why someone arbitrated that 21 million Bitcoins are the only Bitcoins available, and this is why they're valuable. But if you think about it, everybody who owns Bitcoins converts those Bitcoins into dollars to know how much they're worth. This is the measure that tells you Maybe this is not intrinsically worth anything because I'm always trying to look at the dollar value. So I'm not saying that crypto is 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 doesn't has its utility because it certainly has. But I don't think people are looking to the right place, and I think eventually the market will will uh, will kind of prove that view uh, as correct. You know, it's funny about cryptocurrencies. There are eighteen thousand cryptocurrencies because I'm involved in a metaverse venture that we're raising capital for. And one of the potential investors is a, a relatively big entertainment company and that wants to get into that space. And of the 18,000, there's really only uh, Arethium. Am I pronouncing that right? It's the only one that's really attached to a product where there's like actual value. Everything, none, none of the other 17,999 are attached to anything. That's right. You can ultimately say we can create the best business minds coin and go with it and it will be worth whatever we say it's worth. But the fact of the matter is that if you go in Amazon or at a, a, a supermarket, at a grocery store and, and, and you tell them you want to pay for your uh, groceries with a best business mind coin, I think they'll tell you, yeah, why don't you exchange those for dollars? And that's <laughs> Right. Yeah. And that, and that's what their, our metaverse venture is. That's why these guys are interested is because they can make their cryptocurrency from all the concerts and everything that we're going to be doing. Right. It will actually be worth something because people will use it for buying an actual thing, you know, whether it's, you know, NTFs or it's or going to the concert. 
it makes it actually uh, a real currency. Another question from the audience, another area I've been hearing about recently is SynBio, restructuring DNA and RNA to solve medical problems and create improved humans and uh, improvement in humans and, uh, and other animals. Do you see important trends in this area? Well, before I answer that, let me tell you, your audience is awesome. These guys are incredible. These questions are so thoughtful and so cutting edge. So I love it. Uh, so thanks for that. Uh, and thanks for giving me the chance to interact with these, these folks. So synthetic biology is definitely one of those trends that we're going to listen to and hear about more and more over time. The concept behind synthetic biology is that the same way you can program an electronic circuit to do whatever you want, like you take little building blocks and you put them together and then you have a calculator or you have a radio or you have a phone, uh, you will be able to do something similar with biological circuits, right? Uh, and our knowledge and domain and understanding of the tools uh, that compose life, genes, DNA, RNA, uh, and all those uh, processes that go into building proteins that we have recently uh, seen a deep mind crack the, the 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 mystery that has been around for ages on how those uh, amino acids they kind of get together and how you can predict the way they're going to fold into a 3D structure that is critical for our understanding of the function of those proteins. All those things, they point into a world where uh, you're gonna see companies that are going to try to reprogram those building blocks, that are going to try to reprogram those structures uh, in order to create, uh, you know, if you have a deficiency of a specific enzyme, or you if you have uh, uh, an overflow of a specific protein, those uh, commands that they'll be able to program within those cells will be able to, to help you out. So yes, uh, absolute synthetic biology is going to be a, a key part of our lives. And this is a trend that I think will increase over the next decade significantly. Funny, all those things, if you told somebody that would make their sex life better, all those people who wouldn't take the COVID shot would take those in a heartbeat, right? Yeah, again, it's about social media, it's about image, it's about you being able to have an interface, and again, this is very critical, an interface with the world that is pleasing to you and pleasing to your ego. So, so you know, vaccines don't have a great interface. It hurts when you take them. It hurts for like two seconds, but it hurts, uh, and you cannot... See them working. You cannot feel them working sometimes. So, so therein lies a, a big challenge with uh, with the world of biology. Another question from the audience. I see Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos as the top uh, two top people to predict the future. Musk views AI with much trepidation. Using example, if you're building a road, there happens to be an anthill in the way. So with no animosity to the ends, they must go. He further suggests if there's a uh, WW uh, World War III will likely be started by AI. What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I don't think that, that, that this is the case. I think that uh, we have romanticized AI for forever. And this is true uh, uh, with any sort of technology. We humans we, we, we always extrapolate and we, we, we like the drama and we like to create those scenarios where a robot will kind of rise against us and a, a, a specific 
computer program will become sentient and then it will, it will control the electrical grid and shock us all to that, death and all that. I think that there are specific cases of, uh, of specific AIs that can absolutely become too complex for us to control. So if you take, for instance, a drone and you tell a drone that you, let, you leave the ultimate pulling of the trigger to a machine, Yes, sure, we can run into problems because machines, as much as we try to program them and develop them, they are imperfect. Uh, and, uh, and there's actually a story that I tell in the book about how uh, this was a very real risk that we faced uh, back in the 1960s during the crisis of the, uh, of the Bay of Pigs in Cuba, where you saw that uh, 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 Soviet Union, at the time the Soviet Union was still a thing, uh, they lost communication with with the surface, and that was one of the uh, instances where they were ordered to start a nuclear attack because that meant if a loss of communications would mean that they were being attacked by the U.S. and you needed the unanimous vote of three officers on board a submarine to uh, actually turn the key and launch uh, uh, the attack, and one of those three. Only one of those, uh, actually the youngest, said, uh, I, I'm not in favor. We have to surface. We have to double check if that's the case. I will not start the nuclear war. And again, if you had relied 100% of machines to do that, uh, uh, you would have run into severe problems. And 1983, John Badham directed a very, very cool movie called War Games with Matthew Broderick. I love that movie. There you go. It's the same thing. If you leave, it's all about taking people from the uh, decision-making cycle. And again, as much as we want to believe that we are going to create a, a sentient artificial intelligence, I think we're 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 not grasping. Uh, we're not at the early days of grasping consciousness and how that would actually come to fruition. I think that the chances are going back to the synthetic biology question, that when we start merging biological systems and artificial systems, that will start to create some sort of glimpse of what could happen. But right now, I think we're, we, we, could, we can rest assured that other than very specific weaponized applications that hopefully people will not deliver 100% of the responsibility to, to machines, uh, I don't see a Skynet in our future at all. Uh, another question from the audience. What do you see as the biggest potential and benefits in terms of biotechnology? What are some of the amazing things you see happening in this space today and in the future? So biotechnology is it may be you know, roughly divided into several fields. So you can think diagnostics, you can think therapeutics, you can think drug discovery, you can think uh, 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 device development. Uh, so the things that we we are more excited about right now have to do with the things that have been more uh, difficult for us to understand and to fight, right? If you look at the profile, and I think I, I alluded to this a few minutes ago, if you think about the profile of the diseases that killed people over the last few decades or centuries, you'll see that this has been changing over time. So uh, in the past, if you had smallpox or measles or mumps uh, or, or, or pneumonia uh, or even influenza, that was almost a death sentence, right? We've lost you know, 
hundreds of millions of people over the history of civilization for diseases that today don't kill anyone, right? Of course, if you don't want to be vaccinated, then you know you'll be killed by stupidity in the form of measles, probably. But ultimately, you, you we have control over our destiny. We know how to handle that. Uh, so, what has been killing us now has been uh, have been the diseases that are more associated with older age, right? The diseases like cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, chronic diseases. So what I'm most excited about in biotechnology is that they are kind of focusing on those types of diseases, like many types of cancers, uh, rare diseases, uh, diseases like Parkinson's and uh, Alzheimer's, diseases that are going to become more prevalent because as we grow older and as we live longer, something that we have already established is inevitable, we're going to see more of those, you know, uh, a cataract in your eyes uh, is almost 100% sure to happen if you live long enough. People had the, that don't develop cataracts, they don't develop it because they, they died before uh, it happened, but it's almost inevitable. So this has to do with the wear and tear of our bodies, of our arteries, of our uh, genes, of our muscles, of our tendons, of our bones, and all those diseases that come with time with wear and tear are, are probably the ones that excite me the most. Uh, and the ones that uh, impact a relatively small percentage of the population that had not a lot of uh, chance to be handled. But now we have, you know, hundreds of companies that are trying to deal with rare diseases, terrible diseases that will be able, hopefully, to control and to cure. So, so yes, it is just a fascinating field that is of interest to all 7.5 billion of us, right? Everybody has a vested interest in those companies' uh, a success. So let me ask you a business question here. When we watched highly innovative companies like Kodak, one of the most well-known brands on the planet Earth, essentially disintegrate, what can we learn from their fall? Yeah, this this has to do with uh, with something that I think most of you have already heard, and there are books published about that called the Innovator's Dilemma. The irony in Kodak's case is that the idea of digital photography and the patent, uh, uh, the original patent for digital photography, was created by a young engineer who worked at Kodak, and this engineer he presented his invention to uh, the senior management at the company and the senior management dismissed that not because they thought it was a terrible idea, but because it would, if, if they succeeded by definition, they would kill their whole business, which was of course uh, selling, uh, uh, you know, uh, a film for, for cameras, for analog cameras. So the, and, and we've seen this movie, right? With Blockbuster, with Nokia, uh, with Blackberry, those are companies that that eventually died an ugly death because they were not able to innovate quickly enough, or they actually saw the innovation, but they thought, well, this is going to hurt us in the short term, in the next couple of quarters of earnings, so we should kind of not do it. And this is why we are in the golden age of venture capital, because uh, uh, incumbents or businesses have realized that now their survival depends on innovation. In the 1930s, if you were a company listed in the S&P 500, you would be listed for, on average, 90 years, 90, right? 
In 2025, by all estimates, if you are a company listed in the S&P 500, you will be listed in, on average for 14 years, one four. So the way that companies are going to fight obsolescence is through innovation, is through avoiding to be surprised by a new technology or a new technique that will hurt their prospects of being relevant in the future. Um, you write the technology for autopilot self-driving has been around for over 100 years. Didn't realize it was 100 years. What was the first uh, self-driving technology and how far are we from like being like the Jetsons where the vehicles take and pick us up without, you know, crashing into somebody else? Yeah, no, that's a great story about autopilot and the creation of autopilot uh, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, and uh, first autonomous cars uh, were tested uh, at uh, Carnegie Mellon University uh, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh uh, in the late 1980s, but they were bulky research uh, projects, very expensive, very slow, nothing that could be applicable in the real world. And now, of course, we've come a long way, but the idea of you taking a car in downtown Philadelphia and driving autonomously all the way to downtown Manhattan, for instance, I think we're still, you know, far away from that, except for, you know, uh, highways and freeways where uh, the, uh, uh, the unforeseen situations are more, unusual, more rare. If you talk about driving in a city, uh, you are still very far from being able to completely dominate the number of edge cases, which are cases that your algorithm does not necessarily handle. And I'll give you guys one example that happened a few months ago, actually, and that was well documented by in the research community. Uh, there was this autonomous vehicle that was uh, riding and it stopped on a traffic light behind a car, right? And what this car had, this was a pickup truck. And the, this pickup was loaded with traffic lights that were flashing multiple colors because they're being transported to some maintenance station. So here you are, a driving car, a self-autonomous car driving and looking at what, by all intents and purposes, is a traffic light. But it's not the traffic light you have to respect. It's a traffic light that is sitting on a pickup truck and that is faulty, that is not working well. So how do you handle that edge case? And so the idea of developing AI that can handle this and every other situation that you, th you can think of over time that will let you sleep in the car because you'll be transported safely and securely from downtown Philly to downtown Manhattan I think we're still, you know, uh, years, if not decades away from that. Yeah, I think you're right. Like Wyoming and least le less populated states, that's doable. But if you're in New York and somebody jumps in front of your car, the stopping and starting can't be can, computer overload, it sounds to me. It's very challenging. There is actually a very famous problem, psych psychological problem, which is called a trolley problem, which is, uh, if you are an AI and you're given the alternative, uh, you will crash because someone just jumped in front of your car and either you hit this person or you'll swerve left or right. And when you do that, you will run over pedestrians or bikers or whatever, and you have to make a decision. This is an ethical and moral question. And actually, uh, I, I put the link on the book 
uh, on, to a website where you can answer which decisions you would make. It's called the Moral Machine. It's an exercise that was uh, developed at uh, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can ultimately see how your ethics or your morals stack against, you know, uh, your peers, your fellow humans. So, uh, yeah, it's a very, very complex uh, problem to, to crack. That might make me very sad to see how the rest of society uh, looks at these things. Um, you talk about the, uh, you define the Internet of Things and what's how do you define the Internet of Things and what's some important impact will this have on our work and possibly personal relationships along with what uh, are the biggest business opportunities in this area? So you can think of the Internet of Things as as transforming anything that exists solely in the real world as an object that will now exist in the digital world, right? So when computers came along, those were the only inhabitants of the uh, digital realm of the internet uh, world, right? You connected computers that were able to uh, exchange information among themselves. But now with the uh, with the advent of sensors and and the uh, price collapse that we've seen over the last few years in those sensors. You can measure things relatively easily. And more importantly, you can transmit that measurement uh, to a computer, hence the internet. So you can you have now sensors that are able to pick up on temperature, uh, heartbeat rate, uh, oxygen levels, humidity, uh, uh, air pressure, and so on and so forth. So virtually everything that is measurable now can be measured by a, a minuscule uh, device that can be attached to a machine or to a person or to an animal or to a plant. And this information will flow into uh, the digital realm. And then you can apply all the techniques that you apply to digital data, big data analysis, data cleansing, data warehousing, uh, uh, AI, computer vision. I mean, you can ultimately do everything you can do with bits and bytes with information that was up until recently available only for humans to look at and consume. So the business opportunities are tremendous because now you can think of if you are an airline or if you are a transportation company or if you are a retail company, you can ultimately tag your clothes, your engines, your planes, your tractors uh, with those sensors. And you can read not only what those sensors are, 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 are being able to capture, but also the interactions that those machines or equipments they have with their environment. And you can make them better and you can ultimately uh, uh, create new business lines based on the insights that uh, billions of data points will give you. The key insight from Internet of Things is that in the past, you had to use uh, 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 just a sleeve of the use cases that you were able to capture in order to be able to produce any kind of insight. With IoT, you can use every single use case available to you, and this will allow you to create and to make sure that your product, your service, uh, is going to be able to satisfy the needs of all of your clients and not the specific group. So, so this is huge for uh, for pretty much every single business out there. Uh, let's talk about uh, gene editing, which sounds like a great idea for preventing or correcting genetic problems like cancer, Down syndrome, and 
other physical and mental issues. But it also could be used possibly to create superhuman soldiers, which I think is what a lot of government uh, are interested in. Um, what is your thought on the upside and downside of uh, genetic editing here? Like like pretty much every technology, uh, right out of the gates, uh, technologies are born with a lot of potential for good and for bad. This is not no different. Uh, if you if you look at the uh, possibility, the sheer possibility that you can fix uh, a, a, a potential uh, a defect in the genetic code of a human being that would be otherwise plagued with a terrible disease, uh, it's our moral duty to go ahead and fix this. Uh, and, and the problem you're alluding to, which is a very real one, is where does the, the border between you know, uh, avoiding a problem or curing a disease and starting to enhance a human being, where do you draw the line? And I am of the belief that uh, you know where the line is, right? Every human being is born with an innate sense of right and wrong. And I think that no one would argue if you look at the genome and said, well, this child is going to be born with a severe deformity if we don't fix this gene. I think everybody will say, let's absolutely go ahead and fix this gene. Uh, and if people said, okay, this child, if I change this gene, we're going to make sure that it's going to be taller and stronger than their colleagues, then you're going to say, well, this is where I draw the line. Because if every single parent wanted to do that for their kids, then by the uh, argument of arbitrage, every kid will be taller and stronger and the advantage will disappear and will create a race of stronger and taller people. So the strength, you can argue that the strength that we as humans have is diversity, is that there are people that are taller, that are shorter, that, that see better, that hear better, and have perfect pitch. We're talking about music uh, in the right. beginning of the conversation. Perfect pitch and not. And, and, the, and the magic of humankind and diversity is that those interactions between those perfectly imperfect people generate uh, collisions in the world we live in. So I think it's definitely a risk. And, but I think we, we absolutely have to open that door because the benefits that this will create uh, for you know thousands of families and thousands of individuals that would have otherwise to live with terrible disease and pain, I think, I think that's something that we have the, now that we know the keys to fix those, I think we absolutely should. And, and this is, you end up legislating things. Uh, one of my students at Wharton, um, was a, a sports doctor and he said there are parents coming in with their kids have perfectly normal arms and the kids are throwing 89 mile an hour fastballs but they want them to get them into the mid 90s so they want them to have tommy john surgery and kind of game the system that's that's exactly right and again uh we've we've seen that in one hand parents are always trying to do the best for their kids and give them an edge and give them an advantage but there's always a moral compass you have to abide to. And this is, again, this is where it's very gray. And for, for a few people, it's darker gray. For a few people, it's lighter gray. Mm -hmm. And for a few people, there's no distinction between those two. And, and this is something that will, will, will accompany us forever because it's human nature. Uh, I just think that we should not stall the progress of gene editing for uh, important and serious diseases just because of those edge cases that we will have to face no matter what. I agree with you, or for religious reasons. Right. Um, 
3D printing has evolved into creating body parts on the, uh, on the plus signs and non-detectable guns on the negative side. Where do you see the greatest impact for 3D printing? And will we all own one that will be used to do creative endeavors and fixing uh, problems uh, like broken items around the house? That's a great, that's a great, uh, a great question because there are people that claim that, you know, in the future, you don't buy anything. You download the uh, instructions for your uh, domestic 3D printer to just print your sneakers or your, your jeans or your shirt or your glasses or whatever. And again, I think this is still, you know, very, very far away in the future because of materials, because of the complexities and so on and so forth. But the, 3D printing has been around since the 1970s. The first patents for 3D printing has been have been deposited in the 1970s. So it's not like it's a, a technology that's that that was created yesterday. But like so many technologies that we talk about in the book, the conditions for it they to come to light and become economically viable have just been created. So my vision is that we will start to see uh, 3D printing serving specific industries like medical, dental, uh, uh, definitely manufacturing, and that it will take a while for us to see that creeping into uh, you know, consumer life on a, a meaningful way. I think people are going to be able to, yes, buy 3D printers to play around, create you know, models, plastic models, resin models, or, uh, or aluminum models or whatever. But ultimately, I think this is a technology that will come of age when we see that uh, optimization of the supply chain that we mentioned before, uh, leveraging the cap capacity that now a business will have instead of ordering an inventory of a thousand uh, parts saying, okay, I will need three of those parts in the next 12 days because my sensors installed in my machines have indicated there's a failure that is going to show up uh, in the next uh, week or so. So therein lies the interconnectivity between all those, all those areas. So I do believe that 3D printing is still, for, for the time being, it's going to be recreational for, uh, for, for, for still quite some time for us consumers, but it's going to become more and more instrumental for manufacturing businesses of all sorts and types. Uh, and this is probably one of the most interesting trends we're going to see play out in the 2020s, I think. Hey, I'll tell you, that uh, this hour went super fast. And I'd love to have you come back again, because I think all of us could have spent the whole day with you listening to you talk about these different topics. And so I'm hoping you'll write another book after this one, now that you've got the bug. Uh, and believe me, you'll want to write another one. And people want to hear more of your thoughts because these things are constantly changing so quickly. So I thank you again for um, speaking with us today. And we look forward to seeing you in the future. And I'll make sure everybody knows where they can get this amazing book that they'll end up reading not once, but a few times to pick up everything. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. It's going to be a pleasure. Bye-bye. Everybody have a great, safe weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.